Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 31 through 42. Verses 31 through 42, and considering the sword of Christ. John, chapter 10, verses 31 through 42 the sword of Christ. Give attention to God's holy word. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. And then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the, the end of this Lord's Day, willing and eager to worship you and to hear of you. But though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and so we ask that you would strengthen our flesh and help us to bear up under the weight of glory that you promised to us through the means of grace. We pray that you would give your spirit to us, that we might hear the words of the Lord Jesus, and in hearing these words, we might live. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Military history is one of my favorite topics. I imagine there's many here also who like to study and learn about military history. One of the things you find as you study military history is that there are conflicts throughout the world, and and as conflicts develop and societies develop, different weapons come on the scene. And oftentimes, an empire is able to be formed because of their military conquests, And those conquests are because there's one weapon or or one piece of military technology that they do better than everyone else. In the ancient world, which is one of my favorite worlds to study, in the the age before Rome, in the, the kingdoms of Greece, the Greek phalanx was dominant. And the Greek phalanx was a formation of infantrymen with large shields and very long spears sometimes 14, 16-foot-long spears. And the way that a phalanx would work is the men would line up and the spears would be sticking out from the formation, and they would be lined up in ranks of 10, 15, 20 men deep. And the way that a phalanx uh, fought its battles was they would just slowly advance. With the long spears out in front and the men with the shields, the men in the back pushing forward, and it would just advance slowly like a steamroller. 
This formation was unstoppable until Rome came along. And one of the innovations of Rome was that they developed mobility. You see, the problem with a phalanx is it can only go in one direction very well. But if it has to change course very quickly, it's very ineffective. Rome developed a system where they could break their units apart, get on the flanks or on the sides of these formations, and defeat them in that way. One of the other things that Rome developed was their sword. The Romans famously carried what's known as the short sword, the gladius. Now, along with this short sword, there was also a certain method or technique to use this sword. The Roman short sword was not made for slashing and slicing. The Roman short sword was made for stabbing and jabbing. And the way that they would use this sword is they would line up behind their shields, and as they got into close contact with the enemy, they would just stab just beyond their shields. And so they had this weapon that was superior to all of the kingdoms around them. And so Rome was able to conquer. But not only did they have the weapon, but they had the technique to use that weapon. Well, likewise, in the Christian life, we are engaged in a warfare. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And because our warfare is spiritual, we have to use spiritual weapons. And as you well know, I trust from Ephesians chapter 6, the primary weapon that we use is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, what we see here in Christ's uh, ministry is that when he was engaged in spiritual warfare, he employed spiritual weapons and achieved a spiritual victory. When Christ was engaged in a spiritual warfare, he used spiritual weapons and achieved a spiritual victory. Now, we're going to see these three things in this passage. Verses 31 through 33 is the spiritual warfare. Verses 34 through 39 is spiritual weapons. And verses 40 through 42 is a spiritual victory. Verse 31 through 33 is spiritual warfare. Verse 34 through 39 is spiritual weapons. And verses 40 through 42 is a spiritual victory. Now remember the context here that that Christ has been dealing with the Jews on in John chapter 10. He's been teaching them about the voice of the shepherd. And he's been explaining to them that uh, it is only the sheep that belong to Christ that hear the shepherd's voice. The, the reason the Jews don't believe Christ is because they are not a part of Christ's sheep. This is another way of speaking about the doctrine of election. God the Father has elected a certain number, and those uh, sheep that have been elected respond to the preaching of the gospel. Well, the Jews in this context, because they were Jews... Outwardly, they were the descendants of Abraham. They had circumcision. They had the temple. They had the law. They had all of the outward trappings of the people of God. They assumed that they were a part of God's sheep. But Christ is telling them, no, you are not part of God's sheep because you do not belong to me. Last week, we looked at the the type of faith that the sheep of Christ exercise, and we saw that they exercise faith in Christ, they are given eternal life, they are protected by the Father and the Son 
because the son is greater than Solomon, and he's greater than Solomon because he and the father are one. Verse 30, the last thing Christ has said to them, I and my father are one. Well, now this provokes a spiritual warfare. And the Jews, as it says in verse 31, took up stones to stone him. Now, it may seem odd that I'm calling this passage a spiritual warfare. When we talk about spiritual warfare, we tend to think of demons and exorcisms and all kinds of of Hollywood uh, depictions of what spiritual warfare is. But but remember, the, the primary enemy of mankind, the primary enemy of you and I, the primary enemy of Christ is sin. It is not the demons, but it is the sin that the demons tempt us to. It is human sin that Christ wages war against. And what you find here, when Christ asserts his equality with the Father, the sin of the Jews shows itself in in living color. They take up stones to stone him. One of the other things to notice about this spiritual warfare, and something that we, we tend to forget in our day, when the truth of Christ is preached and the truth of Christ gains its victories in a society, people riot, people are martyred, blood is shed. Throughout the history of the church, when the apostles and prophets go out to preach the truth of Christ, when men will not repent, they take up stones to stone the Lord's prophets. You read the book of Acts, Stephen is stoned because he's preaching to the Jews. Almost every city that Paul goes to breaks out into a riot because Paul is saying, your gods are not gods at all. Your gods are emptiness and nothing. Something that we need to keep in mind in our day, we will not get a pass on this reality. This generation of the American church is due for this kind of spiritual warfare. Now, I'm not saying we seek martyrdom. I'm not saying that the, the, the government men are coming to break down your doors tomorrow. But what I am saying is that our mentality as Christians needs to recognize that this is a real thing that happens to churches. And the direction that America is going is not a good direction. The, 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 the things that are happening in our society now indicate that this may come sooner than later in our churches, and in our society. So the Jews take up stones again to stone him. Well, Jesus responds, he answers them, many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? John Calvin, commenting on this passage, has a good insight here. He says what Christ is doing is he's exposing their ingratitude. He's exposing their hatred but more so their ingratitude. Notice what Christ says. I have shown you many good works from my Father. The the good works that Christ had done, his healing, casting out demons, healing the blind man in chapter 9, which started this whole episode, all of them were works that were a benefit to the people around him. They weren't merely miracles to show his glory, though they do do that, but they are also good works in that they benefit mankind. Paul will define good works in the book of Titus, and he says good works are things that are beneficial to mankind. Well, Christ brings these things up, and he says, 
Uh, you want to stone me because I healed the blind man? Because I was casting out demons from your society? Because I was uh, purifying the temple at the beginning of the Gospel of John? For which of these good works do you stone me? Well, the Jews answer again, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, notice the pretense that the Jews have for their hatred. First, they say that Christ is merely a man. We stone you because you, being merely a man, are making yourself out to be God. Well, this is in the face of what Christ has already been doing for them. He says, I showed you many good works from my Father. These good works were a benefit to you, but they were also a display of the Father's glory. You should have recognized that the things I am doing only come from the power of the Father. Earlier on in John chapter 10, we already read in verse 21, some of the Jews were understanding this. These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And then again at the end of John chapter 9, the blind man comes to him and uh, he finds the blind man and says, do you believe in the Son of God? The blind man says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Christ says, it is me, and this man immediately worships Christ. He immediately recognizes this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the Jews should have recognized this. He's not merely a man. They said, you merely a man make yourself to be God. You're exalting yourself above what we think you are. Now, this is the nature of this spiritual warfare. Notice, as I pointed out, it is a warfare against sin. It is not necessarily a warfare against demonic forces, but it's a warfare against the sin of mankind. And notice also that the focal point, the the primary expression of man's sin is hatred for God. Hatred for God such that if it were possible, they would murder God if they could. Notice that they're attempting to here. They want to take up stones and stone Christ. Notice also that they're, um, the, the, the pretext or the pretense that they give, you being a man, make yourself God. You know, uh, when I was uh, working uh, as a you know, normal nine-to-five worker, I worked with a guy who was an atheist. And, and we got into many conversations about the gospel, about the word of God. And at, at, at a certain point, we, we got to the end of what we could debate. Because at some point, you, you reach the end of the road. There, there's no more questions that they can ask that you haven't already answered. And there's no more that you can say to them that will persuade them. And I remember when we got to the end of, of this road of discussion over a couple of years, one of the things that angered him most of all was that I kept telling him, this is the truth of God. I know that this is true. And that was just completely foreign to his thinking. He thought, you are just like me. You are are a man just like I am. How can you know what God's will is? And I pointed him back to the scriptures. I told him about my testimony. This is something the world does not understand. When the world looks at the church, it sees fallen people just like they are. 
The, the world does not understand how God works in the lives of Christians. The world, as we learn in John chapter 10, can't hear the voice of Christ. They simply can't understand it. And so they come to this point where they say, you're just a man. How dare you claim to know what God wants? How dare you claim to be God, Christ, as Christ is doing here? So this is the spiritual warfare. This is the context within which Christ now brings out his spiritual weapons. And there's three things I want you to notice about his spiritual weapon. One, he uses the word of God. You see how he answers them in verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? Notice that in the midst of this conflict, Christ goes back to the scriptures. He, he goes back to the Holy Scriptures and cites it directly to them. But notice, before we go any further here, notice what Christ is doing. These men want to stone him for claiming to be God, and as, God, uh, as Christ engages in this warfare, he seeks to prove the very thing that angers them. He, he's seeking to prove the truth that he really is God. He really is the Son of God, and he begins by quoting Scripture. This uh, citation comes from Psalm 82. Turn there with me. Psalm 82. <clears throat> psalm 82, this is verse 6 that Christ cites. And in this psalm, God is rebuking kings and judges. He's rebuking magistrates. Listen to what he says. Psalm 82, verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now, a couple of things to notice from Psalm 82. Notice, first off, he's speaking to magistrates. He says in verse uh, 2, 3, and 4, how long will you judge unjustly? So the, the audience of this psalm are those who ought to be judging, those who ought to be ruling righteously, the magistrates. Notice again in verse 1 and 6, the Lord calls magistrates gods. Now what's the reason for this? The reason for this is that magistrates, because they are placed above the people in reference to the people, are in the place of God. They occupy a position of authority, of power, and of responsibility. And so the Lord can address them as gods because they occupy a place of superiority. But notice also that God judges them. There's great encouragement here for us, brothers and sisters. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks about this. Psalm 82 speaks about this. Even though the kings and princes of the earth are above us, God is above them. 
Even though they may rule unjustly and judge unrighteously, God judges them. And he will eventually rebuke them and condemn them if they don't repent. There's a great encouragement for us here because it's easy to think, we, the poor and the downcast of the earth, we have no power to affect what Congress, the General Assembly, and what the President might do. Now, we can vote. We can do the things that are our right. We should do those things. But ultimately, if they want to do the things they want to do, they're going to do them. You and I can't stop them. But God can. And he stands in the congregation of the mighty. God himself is there in the halls of Congress. God is there in the Oval Office, in the White House, judging what the magistrates are doing. But back to our purpose. Christ cites this, and he cites verse 6 to say that you are God's, So Christ quotes this passage, he he uses the very scripture itself, but notice the method that he uses. You know, my son is uh, learning how to use a hatchet, and hatchet's a very powerful tool. It's also a very dangerous uh, tool if you don't use it the right way. Well, he was out there using the hatchet, and his little sister came out to, to do it with him. And I was watching them through the window, and and I noticed that their method was not very encouraging to their father. So I went out there and said, "Let's, uh, let's put this up for now. We don't want to get any injuries. Likewise, with the Scriptures, there's a certain method to use. We can use the Scriptures wrongly. We can use the Scriptures in an improper manner. And if we do that, we'll either not make very much progress on the tree, or we can severely injure ourselves. Notice Christ's method. He uses the method of good and necessary consequence. Christ cites this passage from Psalm 82, and then he uses the method of good and necessary consequence to argue his point. Now, what is good and necessary consequence? In chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're taught that everything God requires of man is either expressly stated in the scriptures, praise the Lord, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, pray to the Lord, love your neighbor, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's either expressly stated or by good and necessary consequence may be derived from the scriptures. Good and necessary consequence refers to logical reasoning. Now, Logical reasoning has fallen on hard times today, hasn't it? The, the, the uh, two phrases, good and necessary, they come from the school of logic. And what they refer to is something has to be valid. You have to derive it validly or in a good manner from the premise that you use. The schoolroom example that many of you have heard before, all men are mortal. That's premise number one. Socrates is a man, premise number two. The conclusion that we draw, Socrates, is mortal. That's a good consequence. It follows logically. It doesn't violate any of the principles of human rationality. But the second thing that's required is it has to be necessary. Necessary refers to the truth of a logical premise. If you say that all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, 
and Socrates is therefore mortal, let's assume for, an inst- uh, for a moment that that premise is not true. Let's assume that Socrates is a horse. All men are mortal. Socrates is a horse. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, we know that horses do die. However, that form of argument, it is not necessary. It doesn't follow necessarily from the premises that we have. Men are mortal. Socrates is a horse. Socrates is mortal. That conclusion might be true, but it doesn't come from the premises. That's what necessity refers to. This is the way that Scripture is to be used. Scripture is to be used according to its explicit statements, but also according to the logical conclusions that come from it. Now, we may ask, why is this? This has to do with one thing primarily, and then one other thing secondarily. First, it has to do with the nature of how your mind works. Your mind works in a rational fashion. That's how God designed it. When he made man in the image of God, he gave him righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, but he also gave him a rational soul. The soul operates rationally. Your mind thinks in this manner. Well then, secondarily, God wrote his scriptures to be understood by the mind of man. And so the scriptures are meant to be understood rationally. Now, I want to give a a, a caveat here, a caution. I'm not teaching what's known as rationalism. Rationalism is a way of thinking that if my reason can't understand it, it's not true. I and my father are one, for instance. A rationalist would reject that because his reason doesn't understand it. The foundation of truth is God's word. And out of God's word, we then think his thoughts after him and draw good and necessary consequences. The last thing I'll say on this point, and then we'll go to what Christ actually says. I I, I want to encourage you with, with this kind of thinking. Because this is how we grow in the scriptures. Think about some of the things you do as a Christian, as a Reformed Presbyterian. Many of the things that we do as Reformed Presbyterians are not expressly stated in the Scriptures, like baptizing infants or attending worship on Sunday as the Lord's Day. There's places you can find that talk about the first day of the week is when the apostolic church gathered, that the first day of the week is when John was on the island of Patmos in the Spirit, beholding visions of Christ. You can find in Hebrews chapter 4 that there is a Sabbath keeping that remains for the people of God, but the fact that we worship on Sunday is a good and necessary consequence from other parts of the Scripture. The fact that we baptize our children is a good and necessary consequence from the Scriptures. There's one more doctrine that is a good and necessary consequence. The doctrine of the Trinity is a good and necessary consequence from the scriptures. Now, why am I going through all this? Because this is incredibly misunderstood in our day. If I say to you, all men are mortal, Pastor Castle is a man, therefore, Pastor Castle is mortal, the conclusion is as true 
as the premises. The conclusion is just as binding as the premises, even though it's not expressly stated. Christ then, with this passage of Scripture, I have said, you are God's, he now uses good and necessary consequence to prove that he himself is God. And look at how he does it. He argues from the lesser to the greater. Christ first says, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Notice how Christ is moving with a good and necessary consequence. If these magistrates, whom God sent his word to, are called gods, how can you say that the one who was sanctified and sent by the Father, that the one who performed many good works among you, that the one who, in whom the glory of the Father has been displayed unmistakably, how can you say that I'm blaspheming? If these men received the word of God, if I, the very word of God, claim to be God, how can you say that's blasphemy? If they were able to be called gods, how much more can I be called God? That's the logic of what Christ is doing here. And this is the method that he uses as he wields the scriptures. Now at this point, we've got a little bit more to say about this, but at this point, I want to encourage you. This is why you need to soak your mind in the Scriptures. This is why you need to be saturated in the Word of God. It's very interesting, isn't it? Christ picks one of the most obscure verses in all of the Psalter. And he uses that to prove his equality with the Father. He's able to do this because he knows the Word of God like the back of his hand. And he knows that these Jews know the Scriptures like the back of their hand. And so he's able to use this verse and argue from it to prove his point. You also need to know the Scriptures like the back of your hand. One of the, one of the reasons why uh, I think our piety and our churches are not what they could be is because we don't know the Scriptures like we ought to. We might read a verse or two in the morning. We might read maybe a chapter if we're very pious. Um, we, we ought to be reading more Scripture. We, we ought to be consuming Scripture like our daily bread. I want to encourage you that if you would sit down and read the Old Testament, challenge yourself to read three to five chapters a day and, and watch how the Spirit will work to open your understanding in what God's Word means. You read longer passages of Scripture, you begin to see things you didn't see before. Well, Christ cites the Scripture, he pulls out his sword, he uses it with a proper method, good and necessary consequence, but he's also motivated in the right way. Look at his motivation. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But... If I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Notice, Christ cites the scriptures. He uses the method of good and necessary consequence. 
and he is motivated by the salvation of sinners. Isn't this amazing? These men are ready to murder him on the spot. And Christ is still preaching the gospel to them. He's still pleading with them, repent and believe. You don't want to believe my words? Believe the works. Look at the healing of the blind man. Look at all the miracles I've performed. And for the sake of the works, repent and believe. He is still motivated by the salvation of sinners. This is what Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You know, the Romans, when they would use their weapons according to the proper techniques of their soldiering, they were motivated by the glory of Rome and personal glory. But we, when we use the Word of God, when we use the sword of the Spirit, we have to be motivated by love for sinners. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He speaks about the body of Christ and the role of pastors and teachers. And then he says in verse 14 that the reason for this is that we would grow to maturity, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This would be a description of the opposite of good and necessary consequence. This would be a description of what uh, the ancients called sophistry, what the ancients would call deceptive reasoning. Paul says, we don't want to be tossed around by that, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Christ gives us an illustration of that in John chapter 10. He speaks the truth in love to these men, and he shows himself to be a wise warrior with the sword of the Spirit. Is a great encouragement for us here. When we use the Word of God, when we cite the Word of God, when we reason from the Word of God, our motivation must be in all of our interactions the salvation and edification of that person we are speaking to. How often have we, as Reformed Christians, not displayed this motivation. You know, it's often said that the Reformed are arrogant, proud, cold-hearted. At one level, that's a caricature. Sometimes that's just going too far. But at one level, it's, it's not a complete caricature. Uh, it, it's not totally off base. We need to cultivate this kind of love and this desire for the salvation of sinners so that when we use the Scriptures, when we use the sword of the Spirit, it may accomplish its purpose. Now, what is the purpose of the Word of God? Well, Hebrews chapter 4, turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, the author says, in verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter God's eternal glory and to enjoy the blessings he's given to us, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than any Roman gladius, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
When the word of God is wielded appropriately with the proper motivation, it produces the effect of exposing the heart. Now, in our pride, when we are exposed, we resist it. But eventually, all those who belong to Christ, they hear the voice of Christ and they respond. God's word comes to us and says, you're being proud. You're being deceptive. You're you're not living according to my word. And we repent. And we're edified by it. But those who are not Christ's, those who resist the word of God, even though the word of God comes to them and exposes their hearts, they uh, they resist and they do what the Jews do in John chapter 10. Look at what happens. Verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. When the word of God is used properly, some will believe, others won't. When the word of God comes and is used the way that Christ uses it, according to the right method and with a motivation for the salvation of sinners, some won't believe. And that's not a failure. Because you see, why do they want to seize him? Why do they want to stone him? It's not because he's lying. It's not because he's a blasphemer. It's because they hate him. It's because they hate having their hearts exposed. They hate having their sin put on display. And rather than mortify themselves and be crucified with Christ, they would rather crucify Christ in reality. They would rather get him out of here. So here are the spiritual weapons that Christ uses in his spiritual warfare. We learn in Revelation chapter 12 that because Satan has been cast out of heaven, because Christ himself has achieved the victory, now Satan's anger is directed at the church. And, and Satan's hatred of God and of Christ is now directed at the children of the woman, those who believe in the Lord Jesus in Jesus' sheep. We need to be reminded of this. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are engaged in a spiritual warfare against our own sins, but also against the sins in our friends, neighbors, family members, fellow congregants. Sin is what we are fighting against, not the demons uh, and not men, but the sin that holds men uh, bound and captive. When you use the word of God rightly, people will react violently, maybe emotionally violent, maybe verbally violent, but often throughout the, the, uh, uh, the history of the church, physically violent. You know, when Paul was preaching in the book of Acts, he was preaching in a certain city. And as he writes to one of his comrades, he says, uh, I've been preaching here and the Lord is at work. The Lord has opened an opportunity for me because there are many adversaries. Paul knew that God was at work because there was resistance to what he was teaching. He was uh, kicking up the, the conflict by the word of God coming. That's what Christ is doing here. But ultimately, Christ gains a spiritual victory. Now we come to the end of John chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. Remember where Christ was? He's in the temple walking on Solomon's porch during this interchange. And as Christ escapes from their hands, he goes away to the place beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. 
Very interesting, isn't it? In this time period of the Jewish nation, they have the temple standing, and the Lord of glory, the messenger of the covenant, the Son of God whom all of the Old Testament had predicted, is forced out of the promised land. When he crosses the Jordan, he leaves the land of Judah, he's outside of the promised land, he's outside of Jerusalem, he's no longer in the temple. And outside of the promised land, look what happens. Many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. John tells us that even though among the visible church, the Jews of his generation, even though Christ was performing miracles and preaching the gospel to them and they wanted to stone him, Christ was still achieving the victory. He was still reaping souls unto eternal salvation. Notice that their faith is a true and saving faith. Look at what they say. John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. Their faith rests upon the Word of God. John was a prophet, and the things that he spoke about Christ were uh, the Word of God spoken through a prophet. They were equivalent to our Scriptures. So when they cite the things that John spoke, they're citing the Word of God. And their faith is based upon the Word of God. Because they believe God's Word, they believe in Christ. Peter will say the same thing in his second letter. Turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16. He wants to encourage the faith of the people. And he says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is recounting his eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration. And he's saying that as we were on this mountain, we heard the very voice of God the Father giving testimony that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What is the point of all of that? The point is simply this. The Scriptures are more powerful than miracles. The Scriptures are more powerful than miracles. Peter is telling the church, I saw and heard the glory of God on the mountain. Listen to the Bible. Read the Bible. Take heed to the prophetic word in the Holy Scriptures. Build your faith upon that. And just as they say in John chapter 10, 
John performed no sign, but everything that he said is true. And they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great encouragement here for us uh, as Christians living in the day in which we live. It may be tempting to want to see God do great and miraculous things. It may be tempting to want to see Him perform mighty wonders of revival and and bringing uh, myriads of people into the church. It would be an amazing thing to see President Joseph Biden fall on his knees and confess all of his sins and give allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Likely not going to happen. Not that I don't think God, not that I don't think God can do that, but likely not going to happen. But what we have been given in the Holy Scriptures is more powerful than any of those displays. What God has given us in the Word is sufficient to establish our faith and preserve us unto our heavenly reward. And this is the victory of Christ. This is the thing that Christ is laboring for. For you to believe and persevere. That is the reward of Christ. We saw it in Psalm 22. It's one of my favorite psalms. But after the cross, Christ preaches to his people. After he suffers, he gathers all of his sheep into his church. And that is the victory. Well, we've seen spiritual warfare is a reality. But within our spiritual warfare, we have to use spiritual weapons, the Word of God, with the right method and the right motivation. And as we do that, our own souls will be saved and the souls of those around us, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his salvation and for his great love to sinners. We know, O Lord, that his love to us is nothing but an expression of your love which ordained and sent him into the world to save men. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus by giving heed to the Holy Scriptures which shines as a light in a dark place. Please shine the light of your countenance upon us through the scriptures as we seek to serve and believe in you. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.